There's always that one thing that's the crucial ingredient or the crucial step or the crucial part that makes something work, right? It's that ingredient that takes something, turns something into a cake instead of just hot mush, right? If you forget that ingredient, it's a big deal. Or that part when you're fixing your car that if you don't put it back in, the car doesn't run, right? There's a crucial moment in all of these things that kind of make everything go and everything makes sense. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at the crucial thing in Scripture that pulls everything together from beginning to end. This is the moment today that we're talking about this morning that is that crucial moment. Without this, none of the rest of it matters. Right? And the moment we're at in the book of Mark is Jesus' death. We've seen him be arrested. We've seen him on trial. And today we are going to see Jesus' death. But when I say everything in Scripture depends on this, it starts in Genesis. With Genesis chapter 3, um, verse 15, it says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is God talking to Satan saying, someone is coming who is going to strike you and destroy you. It is going to happen and everything from this moment forward is changed because of that. Right? And not just that, it goes all the way to Revelation and beyond. In Revelation chapter 5, which we're going to look at this Wednesday, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, on the sea and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Jesus is the one who was slain. He is the lamb that we will praise for all eternity. And what we see today affects everything in the past and everything in the future. It is the crucial moment of all of these things. And so to understand Jesus and who he is and what Mark wants us to see and to understand discipleship, which is what we're talking about in the book of Mark, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, we have to understand the cross. And now this is a story that most of you in here have heard many, 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 many times, Um, but we're going to work our way through it this morning. It's in Mark chapter 15. Um, It's verses 21 through 39, Um, and it's on page 904 if you're looking at the Pew Bible in front of you. Um, You can also follow along in our app. The scripture will be there um, for you as well. So 21 through 39. Let's read this together. And they led him out to crucify him. And they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. And they crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him taunted him. And when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, 
Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he, See, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. So this is the moment. This is what we're looking at this morning in these verses, and we're going to take it piece by piece. Um, Admittedly, there is a ton of stuff in these verses, and so we don't have time to cover that, but I'm going to give you kind of a glimpse of a lot of the things that are here, and we're just going to kind of look at it in these areas. So first, we're going to see um, that the cross reveals, right? It reveals several things to us. The first thing it reveals is it reveals the call to take up your cross, If you remember, in chapter 8, Jesus says the the job of a disciple is to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And we literally see this with a guy named Simon who is passing by, and he's literally asked to take up Jesus' cross and follow him. So this is the concept Mark has been pointing us to all along. Um, What's interesting here is Simon is just passing by. Um, Simon also has two sons who are named Um, If this sounds familiar, this is very similar to Jesus when he called the disciples, right? He was passing by, he saw a father with two sons, and he calls them to follow him. And so Mark is kind of putting a lot of pieces in this one, and so that's one of them um, coming full circle from calling the disciples with two sons to having a guy with two sons carry the cross. And then we have this verse that kind of looks like it's maybe out of place where they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, but he doesn't take it. And so you may be thinking, I don't know, even know why this is here. Why is this important? Um, but there was a group, um, usually women, that took wine and they would mix it with other things and they would give it to the people who were being crucified. Um, and the point of this mixture was to numb the senses while you experience this, to be able to endure what you are about to experience. And so when they offer Jesus this wine, um, it's sort of a shortcut. It's sort of like we would take, well, we wouldn't take like aspirin for this. We would take something more heavy than that um, if we were going to be crucified, I think. But it's sort of that thing to numb the senses. And Jesus says, no, he doesn't want it. And so what that says to us is Jesus wants the full experience of the cross. He doesn't take any shortcuts. He doesn't numb the pain. He wants to feel it all for us, right? That's the challenging part about all of this that we're going to read today is he does all of that for us. He says he wants no numbing, none of that. And so next we also see that the cross reveals the confirmation of Scripture. We see this in what it says in verse 24, they crucified him and divided his clothes and he cast lots for them. And so it was interesting to me when you really look at this, it's, it's four words. That's how much Mark gives to, act, to the actual crucifixion, right? And then they crucified him, right? That's all he says. He doesn't give you any more than that. And this is typical Mark, right? He's ready, willing to move the action forward. But he's also writing this book to Romans, And if you're writing about a crucifixion to Romans, you don't need to describe what's happening because they already know. They don't need an explanation because they would know that after they got to the top of the hill, Simon would drop the beam and Jesus would be put on top of it. 
And then they would drive heavy square nails into his wrists, right here in between these two bones. They would do one on one side and one on the other. And then they would take the beam and they would put it on top of the vertical beam and let him hang there. And as he hung there, they would take his feet one at a time and they would bend them up and they would put a nail through his arch on both feet, one on each side, with his knees bent. And as he sags, the nails in his wrists would rub on a major nerve that runs right here in between your wrists. One of the reasons the Romans put it there, because there's a nerve there that causes excruciating pain from your fingers to your arm and makes your whole body hurt. And to lessen the pain, you have to push up on your feet to relieve the pressure on your wrists. So just know that your foot is made up of a lot of tiny little bones. And as he pushes up, the nail begins to break through those and rip through those over and over. And they would also know that although the pain is excruciating, what happens on the cross is you can breathe in, but you can't breathe out. When you're hanging there like that, you can't exhale. So every time you want to exhale, you have to pull yourself up to breathe out. And so imagine doing this for hours and hours and hours and hours, keeping in mind that he's already been flogged, his back is shredded. So every time he pulls himself up, in addition to everything else that's happening, his back, which is wide open with cuts and tears, is rubbing against the cross as he goes up and down. See, that's what's happening to Jesus on the cross. And this could last for hours or it could last for days with fatigue, with muscle cramps and limited oxygen, right? The Romans would picture all of that when he says these four words. And so with all that we know about crucifixion and what comes after, um, we see that Scripture is fulfilled and many of these are fulfilled and come from Psalm 22, um, and so I encourage you this week to actually read through Psalm 22 and reflect on it and see how the pieces of this story in the cross um, are seen there. But first we see Psalm 22:17. It says, I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing, which we just saw in Mark, right? They crucified him. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. And then in Isaiah 53, it says, Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil. Because he willingly submitted to death, he was counted among the rebels. Your translation may have criminals. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Right? He was crucified with criminals. All the way back in Isaiah, 500 years before, he's going to be crucified with criminals, and we see that in these verses. The cross also reveals... The confusion of the crowd, which we've seen all throughout Mark, right? The religious leaders, the people who are following Jesus, they're all still a little bit confused about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And so we see this a little bit, another fulfillment similar to this in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. It says, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads, and he relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him, since he takes pleasure in him. Right? It says he would be mocked. But look at what they're saying when they mock him, right? What do they say? They say, save yourself, right? He saved others, but he can't save himself. If you come down off the cross, we'll see it and we'll believe that you are the son of God. See, they see Jesus as weak because he made claims to be the son of God and the Messiah, and now he is being crucified. 
and they wanted him to come down off the cross. But it wasn't that Jesus couldn't save himself. It's that he didn't save himself. Right? He had the power. He had the ability. He could have come down off the cross. He could have saved himself from all of the pain, from all of the suffering, from all the mocking, from all the things that he endured on the cross. He could have just stepped off. And then he could have wiped out everybody who was against him. Everybody who put him there could have been wiped out immediately. But he didn't. He stayed on the cross. Right? This is what the people and the religious leaders didn't understand. What they were asking him to do would actually invalidate his mission as the Messiah. His mission was to save sinners, not to save himself. See, they saw it from a selfish perspective, right? If it was me, if I was on the cross and I could save myself, I would do it. I would take the shortcut. I would stop the pain. I would get revenge on the people who put me there. But that's not what Jesus does. His display of power didn't come through coming down off the cross, but in staying there and enduring it. His endurance and his experience on the cross is what makes all the difference for our lives and our salvation. Because if he comes down off the cross, it will confirm who he claimed to be. And those people who saw it might believe that he is the Son of God. The problem is, if he comes down off the cross... There's no sacrifice for sins on our behalf. God's wrath towards sin and sinners is not absorbed. It's not turned away. He doesn't take our place, and his righteousness cannot become our righteousness. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no reconciliation. We are hopelessly separated from God. But he endures for us. He stays on the cross and we can be saved. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He does absorb God's wrath on our behalf. His righteousness can become our righteousness. We can have hope in a restored relationship with God because Jesus stays on the cross. He endures what he's going through for us, right? Him staying is not weakness, it is strength. So next we're going to see that his cry clarifies things for us. And there are two cries, right? The cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken or abandoned me? And then the cry right before he dies. And the events around both of these are significant and they help us understand what Jesus is actually accomplishing on the cross. And so before the first cry, we actually um, see darkness that clarifies God's judgment. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that there was darkness around this time when Jesus was on the cross, but none of them actually give an explanation for why it was dark or how it became dark. But throughout Scripture, darkness symbolizes judgment. Right? We usually think of the opposite side of this um, because we are forward in time. So we think of being in the light, right? When you are in the light, you are with God. But the opposite of that is also true. When you're in the darkness, there is judgment and separation from God. And so what this darkness symbolizes is God's judgment, right? For whatever caused it. And there's speculation, whether it was a dust storm or whether it was an eclipse or whether it was thick clouds. Um, I'm not convinced of any of those, but I wasn't there. But 
whatever the cause was, I am convinced it was supernatural, right? It wasn't something that just happened to occur in those time, in that time period when Jesus was on the cross. Because the darkness was the sign of a judgment on God's, on sin, right? A theme that we see this darkness and judgment going together in Isaiah, in Amos, in Micah, and in Zephaniah. Most of the minor prophets have verses that talk about darkness and God's judgment going together. And this judgment for sin also symbolized God's judgment on Israel for rejecting his son. But this darkness, this judgment was actually placed on Jesus. And this is made more clear when he cries out and we look at what he's saying. Right? And so his cry clarifies the significance of Jesus' suffering. Again, this verse is a quote from Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned or forsaken me? First verse of Psalm 22. So first he calls out, my God. Right? Even in this moment, even on the cross, even in the midst of this suffering and humiliation and the mocking and everything that went with it, he still says it's my God. Right? So there's still a relationship there. He doesn't turn his back on him. He doesn't disconnect from him. Right? Following God can sometimes be hard, sometimes be painful. But in the midst of it all, we need to remember and make sure that we remember that God has not left us. He has not forgotten about us. We can know that and be assured because of what we see next. Right? He says, why have you abandoned? Why have you forsaken me? See, what's happening in this moment is the connection between father and son has been changed. They were still father and son relationally, but this was what we call a judicial separation. Right? Jesus was declared guilty, and he took on the sins of the world. And as he did that, the wrath of God was focused on Jesus. He bore the punishment and the judgment for sin, and in a sense, God has turned his back away from him. Now, he didn't just feel abandoned. It wasn't about feelings, but this was the actual consequence of taking the place of sinners and dealing with the repercussions of that sin. He was bearing on himself all the awful consequences of human sinfulness before God so that all who come by faith in him might be set free of those consequences and they can follow his way of obedience to the heavenly father and this cry clarifies Jesus death for sinners Right, we see this in verse 37. He let out a loud cry and he breathed his last. Right, the second cry is his cry right before he dies. And Mark doesn't record those words, but in the book of John, he says that Jesus says, it is finished. Now what's unusual here is this would actually be an unusual thing for somebody who's being crucified to do. Because we talked about how hard it was just to breathe, right? to pull yourself up, to exhale, and so when you talk, it involves exhaling. I don't know if we all think about how that works, but you have to sit, air has to come out for you to do that. For somebody on the cross to cry out loudly was extremely unusual. The energy and breath it took was not what normally happened on the cross. But what we see here is that Jesus died on his own accord. We see in other places in Scripture that he gave up his life. So we see that clearly here. As the giver and the sustainer of life, 
He voluntarily gives up his life in this moment. And his death on the cross, the abandonment by God, and taking on our sins is significant. Right? This is the crucial moment in all of history. This is what changes everything. And we see this in a couple of places later in Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took an innocent person and he declared him guilty for us because we were guilty. It was our sins, our mistakes, our rebellion our lapses in judgment, all of those things that put him there. But he took all of that on for us. He did what we could not do. And the separation from God that he experienced was actually the separation that we were destined for as sinners. We were separated from God. Our sin came between us and him but he took on that sin so that we could be righteous, so that we could be free, so that we could be saved. And we see this again in Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because as it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. He became cursed so that we wouldn't have to be. He became cursed so that we could have life. He took on all of this for us so that we could be redeemed. He did all of that for us. So his cry clarifies what he's doing for us. That He was abandoned. He took God's punishment for us so that we could have life. And next we see, because of this, that the curtain opens. Right, the tearing of the curtain in the temple opens the path to forgiveness and salvation. Right, there was a barrier between people and God, and it was their sins. Right, and this was symbolized for the Israelites in this time by a huge curtain in the temple that they could not get to God. There was no way to actually get to Him. You had to go through a priest who went behind the curtain so that you couldn't even see him and met in the place where God was supposed to dwell. Right? And so imagine this, God is on the other side and there's this huge curtain and you can't get there. Right? That's what we should symbolize when we think of our sin and our connection with God. But Jesus came to take away this barrier. The book of Hebrews talks about it like this. This is Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water." Jesus has taken us through the curtain. He has given us access directly to God through his sacrifice and the shedding of his blood on our behalf. And both of these things are significant, Jesus' death and the tearing of the curtain. Right? The curtain that we're talking about is not like the curtains in your house. 
right? Imagine an enormous stage curtain. And if you've ever like touched a stage curtain, those things are heavy. Um, and it's, the curtain we're talking about is like the size of the wall behind me. So it's not like this little one that we think about. It's this, it's this big, like 50 feet high, really wide. It's not insignificant that this thing just tears in half. And just to be clear, right, it says it tears from top to bottom. Meaning there wasn't just some guy at the bottom with scissors and he cut it a little bit and then they started pulling it apart. No, this is a supernatural tearing from the top to the bottom. He wanted there to be no mistake about what was happening with this curtain. See, Jesus' flesh was torn to open the way to God. And the curtain in the temple was torn to symbolize the new way to God. Right? We no longer needed priests. We no longer needed sacrifices. We have direct access directly to him. Right? If this doesn't happen, if the, the curtain doesn't open, if Jesus doesn't die on the cross, then I'm actually not sure that we, we're here this morning. But if we are, there's definitely animals involved because we're going to have to give the same sacrifices that the Israelites were giving throughout all of their history because there is no sacrifice for our sins once for all. And so we have to atone for that, right? The sin requires, atoning for sin requires the shedding of blood. We see that all throughout Scripture from Genesis all the way through. So Jesus dies and his blood is shed to atone for our sins so that we can have access to God. He does that for us and the curtain confirms that. And then we see that the confession confirms. So this is verse 39. It says, When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now, this centurion, this was his job, right? To watch people die is what he did on a regular basis. So he's seen this a lot. But when he sees Jesus die, he understands this, this guy isn't like everybody else. This is something different. Right? And he says, truly this man was the son of God. So this is Mark going full circle. Because if you remember the first verse of Mark, right, the gospel of Jesus, the son of God. And this is the first time that somebody in the book identifies him as the Son of God. Right? The disciples, the religious leaders, everybody along the way, they don't quite get it. If you read it and look it up and you actually search Son of God, you'll actually see that other people do call him the Son of God, but it's the spirits that he casts out who understood who he really was. But no person in the entire book understands that until this guy, this centurion. Right? He sees how Jesus dies and he says there's no doubt that he is the son of God. He is who he said he would be. He makes this confession. 
And so this morning, as we think on and we reflect on the cross and what Jesus has done for us of the, of the pain and the sacrifice and the endurance and the abandonment and absorbing the wrath of God for our sins, I think the, the question we should think about is, in response to this, after seeing the death of Jesus, what are you going to confess? Right? What are you going to say? Are you going to say, like the centurion, that this is the Son of God? That He is who He said He is? That He is who Scripture tells us He is? Will you confess that you are a sinner in need of grace? Right? That it was your sins that were responsible for putting Him on the cross? And that He took the punishment for your sins? Will you confess and believe and trust in him that that sacrifice counts for you as you believe and you trust and you give your life over to him? Right? Will you confess that Jesus' death is the most significant thing, the crucial moment that has happened in your life? And will you follow him faithfully taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following him. Because that's the call of discipleship, that Jesus opens the door by taking our place for our sins on the cross so that we can follow, so that we can endure, so that we can serve him. Will you confess him as your savior? Will you follow him like he has changed everything? Will you pray with me this morning? God, we come before you. We thank you for, for who you are. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for the cross, this crucial moment in the history of our lives, in the history of history, right, that, that changes everything. Everything before this event has significance, has meaning, has purpose because of what is accomplished on the cross, and everything after it is different because of what you have done on the cross. And so my, my challenge to, to many of us who, who hear this, and we talk about this every week, right, but as we think about, as we look at, as we reflect on what was actually accomplished on the cross, what Christ experienced for us, the, yes, the pain, but the abandonment, the absorption of your wrath, of your judgment on sin, that we would see it anew, that we would see it afresh, that we would trust in you fully, that we would understand the significance of the sacrifice and give our lives over to you daily. And say, today, I trust you with whatever I have, with whatever I'm doing, with whatever my plans are, with whatever I'm supposed to do, I give them over. That whatever passes by our way that you lead us to do, that we will just follow. That we will be obedient. Because your sacrifice changed everything gives us direct access to you to obtain forgiveness, to be restored, to be redeemed, to be able to overcome whatever comes our way, whatever struggles we're dealing with, whatever pain we're suffering, whatever we're going through, you understand you are there with us, guiding us, directing us, loving us, sacrificing for us. So 
Help us to trust in you and let this moment be the significance, the most significant thing that we have in our lives that propels us to follow you, to seek you, and to help others see the greatness and the grace that comes in your death on the cross. So help us to seek you fully. In your name I pray. Amen.